ladies, it's Brittany Brazel. The Lord has given me a passion for motherhood and homemaking. From that passion, a ministry has birthed no higher calling. There is no higher calling on my life than to be wife to Simeon and mama to my littles. I still have so much to learn, but as I continue to grow, it is my desire to share the truths God is teaching me. Hey ladies, welcome to part two of the Q&A episode that I did with Simeon. Both of these are being released on the same day, um, so maybe you're listening to them back to back, maybe you have some time in between, but we tried to keep it in a reasonable time frame, but you all gave us a lot of questions and a lot of really good questions that we wanted to try to answer as many as we could, so we decided to split it into a part one and part two. So in part one, we answered just kind of a lot of lighthearted questions, some um, specific to me, um, especially as I am in postpartum and having a newborn, and then a lot of like family questions, some different things regarding our family and how we do things, how we celebrate things, um, some future plans with Australia. And then towards the end, we started transitioning into kind of some ministry stuff but the second episode really kind of is divided into two parts, which the first one I just am lumping as Christian living, just some things, some questions that we've been asked about um, lifestyle as a Christian that we're going to uh, try to address from God's word, because let me just say here at the beginning, we do not have all the answers. I love doing these Q&A episodes, but sometimes I feel like um, I just want to put out there that we are not the authority really on any of these topics, but Christ is the authority and we have direct access to him through his word. So as you ask the questions and we try to share a biblical answer, um, we will talk and try to address several of the things that you guys have asked. Um, but we'll talk about some Christian living stuff. And then we'll transition at the end to some marriage, relationship, kind of some questions along those lines. Um, but Simeon, thank you for coming back for part two. Sure. It's always this fun. This is where I really need you. I could answer part one questions. The part <laughs> two questions are the one where he is going to have a little bit more of a deeper take. Um, so we are called into ministry. Simeon actually is called to preach. And he is not doing that in a full-time capacity right now as we are still stateside. Hopefully we'll be in Australia soon. Um, but he is uh, he does spend a lot of time studying the Bible, um, ministering to others in that way. So when I need a deep dive, he's my sounding board and my wisdom source outside of God's Word that I go to to... Um, to have somebody to talk to and to get another perspective on God's word and how God is revealing things to him. So again, thank you for coming back. But we're just going to jump right in with the first question, which is how to witness to non-Christian families without jeopardizing your kids being around bad influences. Um, I have a couple different angles that I want to jump at this question, and then I'll kind of let Simeon chime in what he has. Um, but first of all, I think it's important to draw a difference between the question is asking how to witness to non-Christian families and not how to be best friends with non-Christian families. Because as a Christian, we need to make sure that our intimate relationships are with other believers, are with people who are like-minded. Um, the Bible talks in Corinthians about not being unequally yoked. We know the power of that friendships have not only on us as adults, but especially on impressionable young children, that peer pressure. 
So the importance of trying to have those close relationships in our lives be with like-minded believers. But this is asking, how do we witness to non-Christian families? Now, obviously, you're not going to be best friends, but it still does involve some level of relationship to have a door to to open the gospel to them. And that's different for different people you come across. You know, maybe you see a guy in a gas station and you hand him a track and you never see him again and that's where your gospel witness ends. But I'm assuming um, this question is really being asked more of somebody that is in your life and that is unsaved that you as a family want to try to witness to. So I think it's important just to have some basic ground rules as a family, no matter whether it's regarding a relationship with a Christian or with an unbeliever. Um, let's just use sleepovers, for example. You know, I, I don't think sleepovers are necessarily a, a wrong thing, but each family has to come with where they're comfortable with that. And Simeon and I have talked about as a ground rule for our family, we're just not going to do sleepovers with friends. Um, both of us have past experiences from our childhood where some things happen during sleepovers that shouldn't have. And you know what? I don't really think that there's anything that would happen in the night hours that would better bond my kids with their friends than could happen during the daytime. So ground rule, we just don't, we don't do that across the board. Um, so then if we're in a situation where we have an unbelieving friend and, you know, my kid's friend wants them to come over for a sleepover. We know, hey, it's not because you're not saved or it's not we're going to make this big awkward situation with it um, because, I mean, we would not be comfortable with them spending the night at someone's house who we knew was not a Christian. Um, but, hey, ground rule, we just don't do sleepovers. And, you know, that's that's where we're at. That's where we're at with a, as a family in our personal convictions. Um, and then, you know, you can take that into other areas of kind of just these ground rules as a family. Um, you know, we've often talked about, and our kids are young, so we're not like in the midst of these like teenage years where friendship is such a huge thing. Um, but so much of relationships and interacting can happen as family units. You know, uh, the majority of the time that our kids spend with their friends are either at church, which again goes back to making those intimate relationships be with believers. Um, but even beyond that, you know, we have friends that are unsaved, um, but we usually engage with them as a family unit. You know, it's not our children going to their house um, by themselves, but instead we use hospitality as a way to to in, interact in that relationship and as a way to extend the gospel. But again, it's a family unit. We are present and we are comfortable with that situation. So I think that is really kind of an important thing to remember um, in this, you know, relationships, inter interacting with other families, even non-Christian families, something that would just help is to kind of have those ground rules to lay that foundation. I think one of the things that people... Um tend to not use enough is the method of hospitality to witness to coworkers and friends that you may have that are unsaved. Um, if you have someone over to your house, they, they are abiding by your house rules essentially. So whatever's going on in your home is going to be how they're going to interact with you. So, you know, you don't have to worry about the alcohol problem. For instance, if you're not a drinker, um, if you're at your own house, so Hospitality um, is a great way to be able to witness to friends and family. And if they've come to your house and then they invite you to their house, 
they're probably going to put away those kinds of things because they know you don't have them in your house to make you feel more comfortable. So it all, you know, if you start by having someone over to your house first, it kind of solves a lot of the problems too. Um, you know, our kids are little, but the older your kids get, have those open conversations with them. You know, it's okay to tell them, listen, we're going to somebody's house. We don't believe they're believers and their house is going to look different than ours. Um, and just brace them for that. So they know that that's coming. So, I think part of that, you know, you can't protect your kids from all ungodly influences. They live in a world that's ungodly, but you can prepare them for those influences. Well, I know, you know, like I said, we don't have teenagers, but I'm remembering back to when I was a teenager and my dad was good about making our house the fun house. Like it was the place that our friends didn't want to invite us over to their house. They wanted to come or that yeah they wanted to come to our house and they wanted to spend our time at our house because our house was fun my dad was fun i mean i've often thought about that i know i've mentioned sally clarkson on here is is one of my virtual mentors um but she was talking one time in a book about how she just always tried to have cookie dough in the freezer ready to go especially when her children were in their teenage years um because even with christian friends you know she just wanted to keep a pulse on her children's relationships, conversations, and, and what was going on in their lives um, and, and in their relationships with their friends. So being, you know, the mom that had the cookie dough that tried to be fun and, and have a relationship with her kids' friends even, um, really made her house the central point. Everybody wanted to go there. And I've kind of stored that nugget away for the future, just remembering that, you know, trying to make our place fun and enjoyable and a place that our children would want to bring their friends to. So again, so that we can just kind of, um, be involved, you know, not right up in their business and, you know, taking away from their time and that relationship with their friends, but just so that we can be included in that. And it's not something that's so segregated from us that we have no idea who their friends are, no idea what's going on. Um, so I just think those are some foundational things. Like I said, Christian, non-Christian, um, but just to kind of lay that framework. And then as you're witnessing to families, really utilizing hospitality um, and yeah, just having real conversations with your kids and then just to always, always be on guard and to be careful. Um, so another question somebody asked is how do we engage in dialogue with Christians who have different viewpoints than us? And then she emailed me a little more clarification. So this isn't like, okay, the Bible says this is right and this is wrong. And so, you know, I have the right opinion and they have the wrong opinion biblically. This is more stuff like, okay, more like church politics. Um, you know, we have X amount of dollars left over in the budget. I want to use it for children's outreach. So-and-so wants to use it for a meal for the homeless. We can't come to an agreement. How do we engage in dialogue? How do we have a Christ-like spirit when we have these differing opinions? I think the first thing is to think about what Paul um, wrote about as regards to the weaker Christian. Um, Paul talked about not taking meat that uh, was offered to idols and all this kind of thing. And he said, you know, the meat's meat. It's not going to do anything. It's just meat. But um, if we... If we are friends or if we are taking a meal with somebody who has a problem with that, then we're supposed to defer to the weaker, the, the weaker Christian. Paul's point was that they believe it to be wrong, and it would harm their conscience to 
um, to partake in that. So you, even though you don't believe it to be wrong, should always bow toward the person who has the stronger conviction. Um, now, that has to do with things that they believe to be right or wrong. If it's something that really has no bearings on right or wrong at all, and it really just comes down to opinion, my answer to that comes down more to have grace. Um, there are things that are worth fighting over, and there are things that are not. And sometimes God will bless it just because you bowed out. Um, even if you think, okay, you know, I, I really think that these funds should go towards this particular thing. It's okay to argue your case for that and present reasons why. But, you know, if, if, if the church or the other person is not willing to go there, have grace and, and just be willing to ag agree to disagree on that particular thing. There are things we can't agree to disagree on. Those things are doctrinal. Those things are, you know, the solid things that we can find in scripture, or at least principles that we can find in scripture. Um, or standards that we can find in scripture. But there are things that we can agree to disagree on. Um, another thing before we, some of the other questions that we're going to answer here are um, a bit touchy. Okay. So before we even get into those, I just want to start by saying that this is where that falls in having grace on people who may not line up with us exactly on everything. And even if some of those things we have strong opinions about, um, it is okay for Christian people to agree to disagree on certain things. Um, I have people that I follow on social media, people that follow me on social media, and we both know that we don't agree on certain things, and we have agreed to disagree on certain things, um, but 99% of what we have, we have in common. If it's not a salvific issue or a major doctrinal issue, it's sometimes it's better just to agree to disagree than putting your Christian argument on full show for the lost people to see as well. Well, and I've said it a million times since we've started this Titus study on the podcast, but we are all walking this road of sanctification. And like I said, we have not arrived at the end. So we have tried to seek out biblical counsel and Bible answers for some of these questions, but we haven't arrived. Um, you know, God is still working and growing in us. So like Simeon said, while we do have strong Bible convictions on this. If you have strong Bible convictions and it doesn't land you where it's landed us, then, you know, we can agree to disagree in kindness and still in the unity of Christ. One thing I will add before we move to the next question is if it is in regards to like a, a church issue, something that you're trying to agree on as a church and so-and-so thinks one way and so-and-so thinks another way. Again, if neither are biblically wrong or unsound, it's just a preference type thing. Um, you know, we, as a church member, when you join yourself to a church, you are submitting yourself under the leadership of the pastor. And, you know, in doing so, I would hope that on the forefront, you know, you would not join a church or submit yourself to a leadership that is more like of a dictatorship or, you know, a pastor who doesn't also have godly counsel that is, um, you know, influencing and encouraging him. But if you have a pastor who is truly a pastor according to God's word who is seeking to do his best to steward his flock well and to be Christ-like in how he leads and guides his church. Um, if it's a preference thing, then I really feel like the final word goes to the pastor. 
And the members need to be okay with that because there again, as a member who has joined yourself to that assembly, you have submitted yourself under that leadership. Somebody has to eventually assert leadership. You know, if there has to be a choice made, somebody has to eventually assert leadership and the proper person to do that is going to end up being the pastor. If anybody else is taking that authority or if the pastor is unwilling to take that authority, there might be a deeper problem. Um, but these kind of small issues and bickerings are typically more a sign that there may be immaturity issues with the individuals involved or with the leadership involved. Um, so my question would be, or my, my advice would be more to be, be watchful of yourself first and watchful of others to detect um, what's going on with those people and to see if it may just be an immaturity issue. And if it is, again, have grace and, and lean towards that. I think it's a good reminder to, um, you know, if if you are looking for a church, you know, what do you look for in a church? Is it entertainment? Is it a good kids program? Or, you know, they have fun activities for my teenager? Or are we actually reading the doctrinal statement? Are we seeing, you know, what is their stance on biblical issues? And I feel like if we are taking that that deeper investment into joining ourselves to an assembly of, of believers, then that should kind of on the forefront give you an established with, okay, this is what the pastor believes from God's word. This is the trajectory of the church. This is how things will go. So based on my knowledge of the Bible, based on my road of sanctification, I can in good conscience join myself to this group, therefore entrusting my life, my family, um, to this pastor who is to shepherd my home. And again, if that is kind of the forefront, the foundation of that pastoral relationship within a church, um, then I would think that it should be easy to allow him to have the final say in some of these and to not have a bitter outcome. Because I feel like we've all heard of the church that split because, you know, grandma wanted green carpet and, you know, Susie wanted red. And so the church split over something so trivial. And and really we laugh at that, but that's heartbreaking that the unity of believers can be so easily shattered. But I feel like a lot of that is just rooted in flesh. Um, But there again, if it's just a preference thing and you can't seem to come to an agreement, try to have grace, like Simeon said, and just submit yourself to the authority of the pastor that you have chosen to put you and your family under. But as per the original person's email about, you know, should we do it towards this ministry, towards that? Typically, you know, we talked about in the previous Q&A session about the difference between ministry and service. Ministry always comes first. The teaching of God's Word always comes first. So whichever one of those two options is going to do a better job of getting God's Word into the hearts of people is going to be the one that I would say the Bible would always lean towards. Should we do service-oriented things as well? Yes, absolutely. You know, the Bible teaches us there are specific people that we're supposed to help take care of as a church. Um, but the ministry always comes first. Getting the Word of God into people always comes first. So the furtherance of the gospel has to be at the first and for- foremost of the mind of the church when we're talking about, you know, what, what we're going to give funds to and all that kind of thing. And, you know, you may have to take a little bit of time to mine out God's Word and see, okay, is this a preference or does God's Word really have something to say about it? Um, the email continued in another example it gave is, especially since, you know, COVID and coming back from COVID, so not in the height of it all, um, but now, two years out, as we're readjusting, 
you know, okay, maybe somebody says, I think we should just do more online services. Maybe only meet once a week and then have online meetings as opposed to our normal three weekly meetings. Um, but, you know, and, and that may seem like a preference issue, but really the Bible does have something to say on that. The Bible actually says, you know, it, as the days get closer to Christ appearing to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, to assemble even so much the more. Um, so again, you know, some of these issues, you might just have to step back and say, all right, let's, let's try to get in God's word. See, does God say something about this? And if so, always side with what the Bible says. Um, but then beyond that, if it is a preference issue to just follow the authority of your pastor. All right, we're going to transition into the next question, which is one of those um, a little more muddy water topics. But somebody asked what our thoughts were about tattoos. Okay, so um, I'm probably going to upset people on both sides of the aisle on, on this one. So let me start by upsetting the people that lean towards my side of the aisle. Um, Leviticus chapter 19 is typically the go-to scripture on the topic of tattoos. However, I'm just going to go ahead on the forefront and tell you that it really is not a good verse for this subject. Um, Leviticus chapter 19 Verse number 28 says, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Now, if you take that one verse and you rip it out of its current context, it makes it pretty clear that you're not supposed to mark your body. Um, and he stamps it by saying, I am the Lord. So, in other words, the authority for that is that he's the Lord. Don't mark your body. That seems pretty clear. However, if you actually look at the context around it, um, you find that the previous verse talks about not rounding the corners of your head or rounding the corners of your beard, um, much less shaving your beard clean. So most of the time, the guys that are using that verse are also the ones that want to have your face clean all the time. So my, my point is, there's three kinds of law in the Old Testament, and if you don't understand those three kinds of law and when they do and do not apply for the modern-day Christian, you're going to have a lot of confusion. The three kinds of law are the ceremonial law, the sacrificial law, and the moral law. Okay, so all of the laws in the Old Testament that God gave to the Jewish people will fall in those three categories. The ceremonial law and the sacrificial law were taken care of in the person of Jesus Christ, which is why, you know, Paul talks about how it's no longer necessary for boys to be circumcised, um, and how Paul, you know, we talk about how we no longer need sacrifices because Christ took care of that. Christ took care of the ceremonial law. All those picturing things that were pointing to Christ were fulfilled in the person of Christ. We don't got to worry about that anymore. Same thing with the sacrificial law, the ceremonial law, but the moral law is still in place. In fact, even more so, for instance, Jesus said to even think about a woman in an adulterous way was to commit adultery with her. So he took the law and actually amplified it. So the moral law, Jesus amplified, whereas the sacrificial law and the ceremonial law have been done away with in the person of Christ. So this particular chapter is actually not a good chapter to use for this subject. Now, that would seem to say that I lean on the side of tattoos are okay. However, I don't. Um, so let me explain to you for using the rest of Scripture um, to prove my point here. If we look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, we find out that our body does not belong to us. It says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? 
For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So that places the authority over what you do with your body in God's hands. Okay? Now, when I said what I said about Leviticus earlier, um, about the three kinds of law, while those laws do not apply to us directly, they do still exist for us to learn from. The reason why in Leviticus those laws were there is because the people that lived in that day and age would mark themselves. Now, they didn't have tattoos back then, so tattoos weren't even a thing. But they did cut their body. So what they would do, um, there's instances, for instance, of women in Canaan who wanted to get blessings from their god of fertility, so they would actually scar themselves on their female parts to um, gain that blessing from their god so that they could have children. Um, they would mark their bodies and identify themselves with their God. If you move forward in the Bible all the way to the last book of the Bible, you find that both Satan and God mark the bodies of the people who are identified with them. So Satan marks the people, you know, we, we all know about the mark of the beast and that kind of thing in the forehead and in the hands that marks that person and says they belong to the devil. Whereas when we come back with Christ, the Bible says that we will have his name in our forehead. So we are also marked with God's name. That being said, in scripture, marking your body points to, I belong to someone else. Um, The servant, for instance, could have an all pierced through his ear to signify that he would continue to belong to his master forever, even after the year of Jubilee. My point is that marking your body signifies that you belong to someone. So, um, we already belong to someone. And so, marking our body, I don't believe to be appropriate because we already belong to the Lord. And all throughout the scripture, marking your body means that you identify as being, belonging to someone else. Last reason, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse 31, says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So, I have a couple of concerns with marking my body. Does that particular action bring glory to God? Our actions that we commit on a regular basis, and even more so the actions that we commit that are going to be permanent, should be to glorify God. And there are much better ways to witness than to mark John 3.16 on your arm. Um, One thing I would say is this. Uh... Tattooing brings in the modesty issue big time, um, because when you mark your body, you're doing so with the hopes that people will see it. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. You're drawing attention to yourself. Most often, tattoos are placed in areas of your body that are sensual in nature, so that people will be drawn to look at those particular parts of your body. Or you know, perhaps you think, okay, this is a feminine look, or this is a masculine look. Um, that's typically what it is, but it's drawing attention to you and not drawing attention to Christ. Um, there's also the end that there are medical concerns with getting tattoos. Uh, the tattoo artist is not a medical professional and he's using a needle to get under the surface of your skin and that can cause infection and other things. So you're putting your body in unnecessary danger when you get a tattoo. Now to take this to an extreme, you could say that piercing your ears would also do some of the same things. And you know, I'm not, I'm not going to argue that point. My point is that we need to have grace. If you disagree with me on this one, okay. You know, we're going to have to agree to disagree on the tattoo issue because, again, there's nowhere in the Bible that says, thou shalt not get a tattoo. But there are principles that point to not marking yourself and making sure that 
anything that's permanent that you do to yourself is only to glorify God. And if you're on the fence, just remember that one day you're going to be 80 and wrinkly. <laughs> and, you know, that cute little star or whatever might not look quite so cute one day. <laughs> okay, another question that was asked is, what do you believe is a biblical position on drinking? Okay, so I'm going to hit some stuff really fast on this one. We have a position that we do not drink alcohol at all. You probably picked up on that already um, from some of the other episodes. But I'm just going to hit some highlights here real quick and some reasons why. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Um, that word mocker, um, we tend to breeze over that when we read that verse, but the word mocker literally means to laugh at, to scorn, or to belittle. Wine is laughing at you, is what that verse is saying. If you consume alcohol, that alcohol is laughing at you. Um, Proverbs chapter number 23, verse 31, talks about the wine moving itself aright. It says, um, look not to the cup when it is red, when it leaves its color in the cup, um, and when it moves itself aright. That idea is when there is alcohol in a beverage, you can see the beverage moving even though you're not moving it this is not a carbonation thing like you know you can see your your coca-cola fizz that's not what it's talking about but alcohol actually you can if you watch a glass of wine that's why they swirl the wine in the glass they say they it's to make it breathe the idea is that that alcohol is making the 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 liquid move so that verse is literally saying don't even look at the wine or don't be tempted by it when it moves itself or if it has alcohol in it John chapter 2 is the classic passage for those people um, who want to say that drinking is okay because Jesus turns water into wine. And it is obvious that some of the people that are at that event have been drinking. Um, so just a little bit of history here. Jewish vineyards, the entire reason for putting, putting wine into bottles um, was to preserve the sweetness. That's what they were after. So better wine was sweet. However, when wine becomes alcoholic, it adds a bitter taste to it. Alcohol by nature has a bitter, a more bitter taste. So they would have considered an alcoholic beverage to be worse than a non-alcoholic beverage because the non-alcoholic beverage has preserved the sweetness. The better wine is the sweeter wine. So the old wine was actually worse. So they eased them in with the old wine and then they gave them they gave them the good wine first, and then they gave them the worse and worse wine to make because they were going to become more and more drunk towards the end. But in this passage, they say, you have saved the best wine for last. In other words, the sweetest wine, the wine with the least alcohol or no alcohol content came last. That's the wine that Jesus gave them. Okay? You can look into that further when you have more time. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, I think, is the strongest passage on alcohol. Ephesians 5, 17 through 18, which says that you are to... Uh, be not drunk with wine, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. So being filled with the Holy Spirit is juxtaposed directly against drinking alcohol or being drunk with wine. Often people say it's talking about not being drunk. But let me ask you a question. If you've had one glass of alcohol, even if that gives control of your mind to the alcohol 0.0001%, that is 0.001% that is not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because those two things are juxtaposed against one another. You either are drinking wine or, or alcohol rather, or you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't be filled with both. So even if just a portion of it is given to the alcohol, that means that you're not completely 100% under the Spirit's control. 
to me, that's the strongest argument for not drinking alcohol. Even if it has the smallest amount of control over you, it's still control that the spirit should have. Okay, we're going to transition into some marriage and relationship questions that have been asked. So someone asked the question, they were reading in 1 Corinthians 7, and their reading brought them to the possible conclusion. Um, Paul's talking about virgins and marriage and trouble in marriage. And so it kind of left some wondering if you were not a virgin when you got married, if you would be less blessed than someone who saved their virginity for marriage. So you would not be the first person to be confused by 1 Corinthians 7 <laughs> um, because Paul can, sometimes he uses these long run-on sentences and at times he can be a bit confusing if you're really not paying attention, um, really close attention to what he's saying. So um, I'm not going to go into the entire chapter, but I will give you a brief overview of what the chapter is about. Um, Paul starts off by saying that it would be better that everyone remain unmarried. <laughs> so that's an interesting take, and some of us would have trouble understanding that, but Paul actually goes further when he goes into the chapter and says that he recognizes that that's not possible for everybody, um, that Paul himself is a bit of an exception to the rule that most men are, we have a natural drive that's not going to allow us to do that and not sin. So Paul said, if you're, if you find yourself to the point where you know you're going to sin because you're not built to be single, then marry. So, however, he does say that it is a sin to have a sexual relationship before marriage. He says, if you feel that drive, if you know that you can't go on without committing sin, then you need to get married. Or if you have committed that activity, then you need to get married. Um, but Paul doesn't actually in that chapter address the idea that one group is more blessed than the other. What he does say is that one group has more responsibility than the other. So later on in the chapter, he's we've talked about this before on the podcast, actually, but later on in the chapter, he says that the woman, the woman, the virgin who gets married will have more trouble than the virgin who does not get married. Now, that word trouble, if you're not careful, you might think that that's a bad thing. That word actually carries the context of that person's going to face more or have more responsibility than a single woman would have. So let me put it to you this way. A single woman only has to take care of her own physical needs and can devote all of her time to the service of the Lord. A married woman has to take care of her needs, the needs of her husband, the needs of her children, the needs of her household, and then what time she has after doing all of that, she can give to the service of the Lord. Paul was saying an unmarried person doesn't have that problem. They can devote every ounce of their time to serving the Lord with all their heart all the time. Um, in the physical service, I'm not talking about, obviously it is serving the Lord to serve your family, um, but in the physical service of what the church has, what the church needs out there witnessing to people, that kind of thing. Um, whereas a married person, they don't have that. They don't have that ability or that time. That is what he's talking about. Um, so he's not saying that a single person is more blessed than a married person or that a married person is more blessed than a single person. It's just that their responsibilities are different. Paul had freedom to travel all over the world, preach the gospel, and get beaten in city after city, which he would not be able to do if he were trying to take care of a wife and children. So that's where that context is. As far as you know, a person who messes up and 
you know, it is a sin. They they had a sexual activity outside of the confines of the marriage vow. That doesn't mean that that person is cursed in some way or that that person is not going to be able to be forgiven for that. Um, the Lord is amazingly gracious. And when we make mistakes, he is there to forgive those mistakes, to patch up those holes. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any consequences for those actions. Um, but he is amazing, amazingly gracious and will forgive um, those kinds of activities, especially when you come to him with a humble and contrite heart. Another question was, what are some of the best ways wives can serve their husbands? Um, there are multiple, I mean, like millions of answers to this question because every husband's different. Every wife is different. Um, you know, for Simeon, he doesn't really notice or care if the house is spotless. That is not something that serves him. Um, my dad is different. My dad does not like a speck of dirt anywhere in the home. So a way that my mom would serve him was to keep our home clean and tidy. I keep our home clean and tidy for myself and not for Simeon. But now Simeon's love language is cookies. And I fail <laughs> in speaking that love language often. Um, so really, I think for this one, I mean, I could... I could give ideas of ways that wives can serve their husband. And, you know, maybe we will here in just a second. But I really think you just have to know your spouse and get to know their heart and their likes and their dislikes and ask them. You know, communication takes you far. Ask them, what, how can I serve you? What brings you joy? Paul speaks to married people in another passage about specifically to men, about dwelling with your wives according to knowledge. Um, I think that also applies to the wife, dwell with your husband according to knowledge. That just basically means know that person and know how to live with that person and how to dwelling with that person. Let, the word dwell literally means to live. So how to live with that person according to knowledge, know their likes, know their dislikes, know the ticks that make them super angry and try not to do those things. Um, Basically, it's common courtesy, but serving your husband um, most of the time is going to come down to knowing when to and when not to do certain things or talk to him about certain things or address certain issues. That doesn't mean you can't ever, but having the right timing a lot of times is, is what it comes down to. Same thing with men towards women. I've had to learn there are certain times to talk about things, there are certain times not to. I read a book earlier in this year, The Flirtation Experiment. And if you're just sitting there at a loss and you're like, I don't know how to serve my husband. And he's like, well, I don't really know what to tell you. That might be a fun book to read together. It gives all these different um, little experiments that you can try to kind of bring a spark back to your marriage. But it had some really neat ideas of different ways that you could serve each other and love each other. Um, I'm just trying to think, Sim, like in a practical sense. So we know that cookies and lingerie are on the top of the list. <laughs> what else falls into place? <laughs> I think one of the things that I, I semi-mentioned it earlier, but um, I, especially since I work from home, um, one of the things is that I, I need focused time. And so even something as simple as making sure the kids don't come in the bedroom when I'm working or, you know, that, that kind of thing, that, that is majorly helpful for me. Um, 
And I am a forgetful person. So Brittany, one of the things that Brittany does and probably is incredibly annoyed by most of the time is that she gives me the rundown on what's going to happen tomorrow, the night before. And then I usually ask her first thing in the morning, what the rundown is for the day. Cause I've already forgotten. Um, but that is helpful for me and it helps me track my day and plan my day, what I'm going to do today. Um, so even something as simple as that, your husband may not have that problem, but again, it comes down to knowing your husband and his habits, what he needs, what he doesn't, um, and doing the best that you can to help him with those things. Part of that too, I think comes down to being willing to have the uncomfortable conversations about what you are and are not good at. There have been times where Brittany's told me like, listen, I'm not good at this and I need your help to do that. And as a man, I respond well to that because it, I have a natural bent towards making sure that my wife's needs are taken care of. Um, often we men don't like to talk about needing anything. So you might have to directly pinpoint, ask him, how can I help you with this thing? Because you and I both know it's not a strong suit of yours. And you know, if he's in the right frame of mind, then he may be able to answer that question for you. Someone asked marriage advice for going from one to two kids or even adding more kids. So we have went from one to two to three and now to four. I think you just need to remember what is priority. And we've talked about that on the podcast. Obviously, first and foremost, my relationship with Christ is preeminent above everything else. Um, but then I have to remember that Simeon needs to come before my children and, you know, I'm in a newborn season, so she needs a lot from me physically, emotionally. Um, but I also need to remember that Simeon is still my husband. Now, in that, there is grace, and he understands the season. And, you know, I, the baby gets a lot of my attention. And, you know, there are nights where I'm tired, it's late, and I just want to roll over and go to sleep and not talk or anything like that. Um you know, that, that is a, a season, but I think just not allowing yourself to put your kids first, um, as, as a habit, you know, we were at a marriage conference once and somebody was mentioning how, you know, you, if you get in that habit of putting your kids above your spouse, then for, you know, 18, 20 years, however many years you have children in your home, your life is your kids. And then when they leave, all of a sudden, it's just you and this man. And what do you have in common? Have you invested anything into that relationship? Because now it's just you and him till death do you part. What is that relationship going to look like? And just giving the reminder that that needs to be your first priority. With more kids comes a busier lifestyle, which means it can be easier to neglect Um one another and, and the marriage that you have or should have. Um, and so I would just say that you have to start filtering needs into categories. And this is one thing I've, you know, I've tried to help Brittany with because she struggles with trying to do everything today right now. Everything's a need. Yeah. So, um, struggles with trying to make everything happen today right now and nothing can get ever get pushed off. Whereas, I may have the opposite problem where I have a tendency to procrastinate or to put things off or to I'm overly relaxed, I should say. Um, so that the, has the benefit of me not getting stressed as easily, but it also has the negative of me not getting as much stuff done. There is a happy medium there. And part of that, you know, when I was in the workforce, we were taught 
um, about priorities and their illustration was given. You're trying to get all of these things crammed into a big jar and you got big rocks, you got small rocks, you got sand and you got water and you got to get it all in the jar. The only way to get it all in the jar is to start by putting the big rocks in, then the little rocks, then the sand, then the water, and it will all go in. The idea was take care of the big, most important, most necessary things first. Um, so getting food on the table is one of those big, important, necessary things. It's also a regular thing you can plan ahead for. Um, whereas somebody breaking a toe is a big, necessary problem that you can't plan for. And if some emergency happens, you can't get all flustered that all of the minor needs didn't get taken care of. The major need had to get taken care of. And so I think part of that is making your ma your marriage a major need. Your marriage is not an emergency need, but it is a regular major need that you need to make sure that you're taking care of. And some of that, sometimes that takes some planning ahead. Um, Brittany and I try to spend evenings together. I don't work every evening. I could work every evening and she could work every evening, but we don't. We try not to work every evening. We work some evenings, but that's one thing that we've tried to make a priority. We read together or we play a game together or we do something together um, most evenings out of the week because that's a focus that we have. Now, Brittany has a newborn. She's carrying one in her arms right now. So you've probably heard her. Those are immediate needs sometimes that I have to be gracious and allowing for. And that can be annoying. Um, but I have to be gracious and allowing for them. The main thing I think is just making sure that those major needs, make sure your marriage is one of the major needs that gets taken care of. Well, and I'm going to go ahead and go there and address this because it's something that I wish someone would have, uh, it's something that I wish that a woman would have biblically addressed really earlier with my first. Um, but as far as like physically and emotionally connecting with your husband during that time, I know there is a time for healing. There is a time that we just both have to have grace with one another as, like I said, healing is happening. Um, lack of sleep is happening, especially as you add more and more children. I mean, not only am I caring for a newborn, but, you know, I'm thinking about potty training a toddler and I'm homeschooling kids and it's a lot. And at the end of the day, all I want to do is flop down into bed and I don't, I don't want to be touched. I don't want to be cuddled or be intimate at sometimes. But I know that in my relationship with Simeon, it is the times where we are connecting regularly in, in all three areas, in body, soul, and spirit, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, that we have our strongest marriage. Um, and, and I think that's important. Like I said, take that time, heal, recover, have grace. If your husband doesn't understand that, communicate with him. Hey, look, I, I need to give myself a chance to recover from birthing a human, but don't let that extend into months and months and months of pushing off, pushing aside, um, because sexual intimacy is part of marriage as God designed it and as God created it. And to continually withhold that um, it's not healthy for your marriage. It's not healthy for your relationship. Um, and, and even, like I said, just emotionally on a communication basis, you know, let your conversations extend beyond the kids, beyond how tired and exhausted and exasperated you are. Um, try to rekindle those things 
as you can as as your body allows for it and you know and then again that is just something that you have to navigate as a couple when is the right timing for you what is that going to look like but i do think it is important just to give that reminder um don't don't push it farther than it needs to go connect with your husband make that relationship a priority um like i said in in all three of those areas spiritually emotionally and physically I don't want this to come across the wrong way because I know I'm speaking to an audience of women. So that's why I'm addressing women here, but there's definitely things that men ought to be doing, um, to help take care of some of this stuff. But, um, the scripture does teach that the woman's body belongs to the man and the man's body belongs to the woman. Um, so it goes both ways. The man is instructed by Paul to love his wife, whereas the woman is instructed by Paul to submit to her husband. Now, I know that is a dirty word, um, but the truth is that... Okay, clarify. <laughs> submit is a dirty word a lot of the time, um, to to women especially, um, and, and I get that. But he does give the instruction to men to love, and I think the reason why the Bible does it that way is because the natural tendency of the woman is to not submit, and the natural tendency of the man is to not love. Um, so... That's exactly why we're instructed to. Men are not always conscious about a woman's needs. Brittany brought up the idea of postpartum. Men, a lot of the time, are not attentive to their wife's need as she's healing and they become selfish. Um, women also have a tendency to not see that the man also has a need, a physical one, um, that needs to be taken care of as well. So if the man is being caring and loving like he should, he'll give you the time to physically heal um, but at the same time, there are needs that the man needs to have met as well. And so there is a balance there that needs to be found. And that's only going to be found if the two of you are communicating yourselves. And some of that's not even sexual. Some of that is just intimate. You know, he wants to snuggle or whatever. Really, I feel like if we could just sum up the answer to this question in one word, it is communication. You have to navigate adding other human beings into your family unit, whether you're going from zero to one or, you know, 19 to 20, you're adding a new person into your family. And, and that forever changes the dynamic of your family. Um, but especially in that postpartum season where you're figuring things out, you do have this new person who can do nothing for themselves. They completely are dependent upon others and I really think that's just the key here. As, as a married couple, as a husband and wife, just communicate. You know, if you need something, talk through that. If, if you're not ready for something, talk through that. But communication solves so much. And I, I really feel like in some of these areas, like we've talked, even in the intimacy, it keeps from selfishness or bitterness or one feeling like they're being pushed sooner than they're ready or one feeling like they're being you know, cast off for this new little person that just takes up all the time. Just communicate through that and and figure out what does that need to look like for you as a married couple. So I had a single lady ask, what do guys look for in a wife? Um, she just said that's not a question that women usually get to ask men. So what is a guy looking for? Let me, okay, let me rephrase this. What does a Christian man look for who hopefully, Lord willing, 
has his head on right and is looking for a godly wife. What are some characteristics? What are some things? I was going to preface the question with that, what you said, because if you're just trying to be whatever a guy is looking for, it depends on what kind of guy you're talking about. My pastor often um, tells a story about a, a mother who comes to him and sh- her daughter is involved with people, the wrong kind of wrong kind of guy, and she has been. All the people she's ever dated are the wrong kinds of guys, and she says, I don't understand. She's a good girl. She's always in church. She likes to be involved in the church activities, but she keeps ending up with these kind of guys. And he tells her, your daughter ends up with exactly who she wants. And that really is what it comes down to. Who exactly are you looking for? Who are you trying to um, attract exactly? Because if you're trying to attract the right kind of guy, then you should already know the answer to this question. The answer to the question is guys that are good, godly, Christ-like guys are looking for women who look like Christ. That's what it comes down to. How are you living your life? Now, if you're talking about physical attraction, that is going to vary widely by the guy. Okay, Um, so I can't give you tips on that one. Every guy's looking for different stuff in the physical realm. But in the spirit and in the soul, those guys are looking to genuinely connect with a genuine Christian woman who will love them, who will take care of their needs, who, who will meet the obvious guidelines given in Scripture, and who will help them to look more like Christ. You know, it's funny. I did an episode recently. I turned 30. Happy birthday to me. (laughs) But I I did thoughts on turning 30 and thinking about my 30-year-old self versus my 20-year-old self. And obviously, I'm married, so I'm not trying to like lure or attract a guy. But my 20-year-old self thought that I had to be this perfect image of what I thought a guy was looking for in order to snag a guy. Um, and, And often that image was not who I truly was, not truly who God had created me to be. Um, I was trying to pretend to be something that I wasn't. Um, And now that I'm 30 looking back and I'm more established and married, you know, I, I think it's important to don't try to conform yourself to be what you think, you know, Mr. Right wants. Um, be who God created you to be. Now, I'm all for, I think we should always be um, becoming more like Christ. I'm not saying just settle in and be content with who you are. Um, We should always be growing in Christ. But I don't think that we need to change for a man, that we should be who God made us to be. And if we're doing that, God will bring along the man that he created for us. You know, I'm thinking back, even in my teenage years, different guys I was interested in and ways that I would try to make myself attractive to them. Um, And now as a married woman married to Simeon, you know, I can be fully myself and he finds that attractive and there's beauty in that relationship. I'm just going to take a shotgun to something real quick. It is not our job to attract anybody. Um, The world's philosophy is that the girl needs to go after the guy or that the guy needs to go after the girl. Biblically, neither one of those things is true. Biblically, both people go after Christ and Christ draws them together. That's what happens in a biblical marriage. You have the guy 
headed towards Christ and the girl is headed towards Christ and they meet at the feet of Christ. That's, that is how that's supposed to happen. I'm not saying that you're walking around with your eyes closed because you'll never see the guy, right? Yeah, we're wearing but, jumpers and tennis shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the point is that you are not after a guy. You're after Christ. And if Christ sees fit to draw you and another guy together through natural relationships, then that's the way it's supposed to work. When we were in college, it, neither one of us was specifically looking for a guy at the time, or a girl in my case. Um we were, and I was definitely not, but we had a large group of friends and all of us were friends, guys and girls, and the Lord drew different people together. And I think that's the way it's supposed to happen. And I'm not saying, you know, that, oh, be who you truly are means don't take care of yourself or don't wear makeup or don't do your hair. I mean, if, if, if that's you, then fine. But that wasn't me. I, think I that like falls makeup under stewardship. and I, I like doing my hair and I like to look nice. Um, but there again, just not doing it to physically attract um, somebody, but just in trying to be biblically feminine and to embrace beauty. And hey, God created women beautiful to men. And, and in trying to display myself in a way that is feminine, that is God-honoring, um, that in and of itself, I feel like, is, is attractive to men. I mean, would you say? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you need a test case in that, um, worldly men are attracted to feminine women that dress like women. So you don't have to. I mean, these worldly girls are dressed, however, to attract guys physically in all the kinds of shameful ways. Um, but those same worldly men, when a girl would walk into the store that I was working at, um, that was dressed appropriately and had a beautiful dress on and looked very feminine, they would always say something about how pretty they were. Almost always. Worldly men, not saved men, because they know what a woman should look like. Um, so you're right. God made men to be attracted to feminine women that look like what God created them to be. Um, taking care of yourself, beautifying yourself, um, I think it falls under stewardship. I really do. You're taking care of your body. You're taking care of your appearance. Um, that if, if it's not vanity, if you're being vain, that's one thing. Um, but being modest, not being vain, but presenting yourself beautiful um, falls onto properly taking care of what God gave you. Last question we're going to wrap up this episode is advice for newly dating couples. So this person messaged me and said there's a lot of advice for newly married couples or engaged couples, but what about newly dating couples? So we're just going to give a couple bullet point things. And um, The first thing is... Really, whatever age you are, if you have parents that have godly wisdom, take their godly wisdom. Take their counsel. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Um, if you are getting to know somebody, hopefully dating with the intent of marriage, um, because we don't believe in just dating for dating's sake. Dating is a process to, um, to find the person that God has for you to marry. Meaning you junior high schoolers have no business dating. <laughs> i throw that out there. Yes. Um, anyway, so yeah, involve your parents. Get their counsel. Pray with them. Get their advice. I'm not saying that your parents need to arrange your marriage, but it is a blessing 
to have your parents' involvement and to have their blessing on your future spouse. I'm thankful that Simeon and I both involved both of our parents in our dating process. It mattered to us what they thought. We wanted to have their approval and we wanted to have their counsel along the way. And, you know, ultimately the decision was ours to make. Um, but we had godly parents that cared about us and, and we wanted their input. So that would be some of my advice is just to, to include that. I also think it's important, as, especially as dating, so we're talking just about this dating couple, is to keep it lighthearted, keep it very friendship-based, keep it in group settings. You know, you can get to learn a lot about a person in this dating relationship by observing how they interact with other people. You know, I think we've all seen the couple where, you know, the guy or the girl puts on this different facade of, than who they really are when they're around that person of interest and then they get married and all of a sudden they find out, whoa, that's not the person that I, I've been dating. That's not who I really thought this person was. And I think so of, so much of that can be alleviated by group settings, whether it's with other friends or family members watching how, okay, as a woman, how does he interact with his mom, with his sisters, with other women? How does he interact with other guys? What do they talk about? What do they laugh at? Um, what entertainment do they enjoy together? What kind of friends does he have? You know, um, I think one of the big ones is when you are dating, you're obviously, you're going to spend some time alone, but that, like you said, the group settings is always best. Um, and the, the more time you spend alone, the more tempted you are going to be to do things that are designated for married people. Yes, um, early in the relationship, you need to lay a foundation. Daniel purposed in his heart, purpose. If this is looking like, okay, this is beyond friendship, we might be romantically involved here, you need to set boundaries that, hey, before it gets to the point where emotions are high and temptation is strong, we've predetermined we're not doing this. We're not going there. Yeah, and both of you will be tempted at some point to break those determinations as well. And so having less one-on-one -on -one time is going to help keep you from that. I'm not saying no one-on-one -on -one time, but less one-on-one -on -one time. Um, that being said, dating is for the purpose of marriage, um, meaning if you've dated six or seven guys in the last three months, you're not serious about marrying any of them. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're just not. Um, and you're not dating somebody that you don't already know and aren't already friends with. Um, so... Dating is for marriage. I would I would also say this. You you mentioned it, but I just want to hammer it home a little bit more. Um, your parents, especially if they are good, godly, God-fearing parents, um, they know you better than anybody else on the planet, including this person you're infatuated with, okay? If they're giving you warnings, listen to those. And sometimes it's really hard because you're in the throes of it and you can be blinded by it. But listen to those advice. Sometimes the advice may not even be bad. Maybe it's just, hey, um, you should ask him about XYZ or whatever it is. Third, I would say there's a big warning flag would be if you feel like you need to hide something from somebody that you trust, a spiritual advisor, a pastor, a parent, anybody like that. If you feel like there's a portion of that person's life you can't talk to them about, that's a major red flag. Um, that means that 
you may not see it this way. You may not even think of it this way. But if you can't invest yourself enough to tell them about whatever that particular part of their life is, you know in your heart that there's a red flag there. There's something that you're embarrassed about. So think about that if it comes comes to it. You know, maybe I'm not going to mention this to dad because he's not going to like that. Or I'm not going to mention this to the pastor because he's not going to like that. That might be a major red flag and you might need to rethink that one. So I know it's an emotional thing and sometimes it can be hard to do that. But if you're having trouble discussing anything with the people who you believe are the most godly in your life, those those are the very things you probably should be discussing with them. I think the last thing that I would just say with this, and it really should have been the first thing because it's probably the most important, but it's just to pray. Pray individually. Pray with the person of interest. Pray with your parents. Pray with other counsel. You know, maybe you don't have godly parents, um, but try to find somebody that has godly wisdom, that has that mentorship in your life, um, your pastor, your pastor's wife, um, you know, whatever is appropriate there. But pray through this um, and try to have an open heart to hear whatever it is that God says. Don't allow emotion to get so loud in your heart that you cannot hear his still small voice. If maybe he's guiding in a different direction, or you know, or maybe maybe this is the person, maybe this is the one. Um, but there again, just making sure that you are making Christ honoring choices as you pursue something as serious as the person that you will marry. Because other than the question of what will you do with Christ as far as salvation goes, the next biggest decision that you will make in your life is who you marry. And that can make your life beautiful. Simeon and I have a beautiful marriage. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But it is beautiful. Um, Or it can wreck your life. And, And the thing about marriage is it often doesn't just end with a husband and wife. Children are a result of marriage, a beautiful result of marriage. But if if you make that wrong choice, it can bring such heartache as you bring children into a relationship that that is not God honoring, that is, you know, unequally yoked. So I think that is so important. And one other thing, saying that unequally yoked, that just triggered something that my pastor said recently that was so simple, but just kind of blew my mind. You know, when we hear don't be unequally yoked. We usually think that that means, okay, well, I'm not supposed to date or marry an unbeliever, which is true. Um, But he also said how a believer can be unequally yoked with another believer. And okay, and the yoke is talking about oxen. So in order for the oxen to accomplish their purpose, they have to be headed towards the same goal. They have to be moving along in the same path at the same rate, both of them having the same desire to accomplish the task that is given. Um, So you could be a saved person wanting to serve the Lord, seeking his will for your life, dating another saved person, but maybe maybe their goal is different. Maybe they're moving at a different pace. And I'm not saying that your growth has to happen simultaneously because it has not been that way for Simeon and I at all times of our marriage. But our goal is the same. Our path is the same. We are working to move forward to accomplish what God has given us. And you know what? When one of us lags behind, the other one encourages 
and prays for and brings the other up and the same thing. So I, I think that is just important to to remember that you want to be equally yoked because if you're not, that is going to make that process of moving forward nigh impossible. To put that into context, there is only one marriage in the Bible that is um, that is permitted to have an unequal yoke, and that is the one between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Because we don't pull our weight, let's just be honest. Jesus said um, that we sh- that we should give our burdens to him, and that he would give our burden. He said, take my yoke upon you. So we get in the yoke with Christ, and he does all the pulling. Here's my point. If you think you're strong enough to pull the other person's weight, then you're saying you're as strong as Christ, and you're wrong. Um, you can't pull their weight. You're supposed to get in the yoke with somebody that is equally strong with you, okay? Now, there's going to be areas in which you're stronger and areas in which they're stronger, and that's totally understandable. There's areas that Brittany's stronger than me, and there's some where I'm stronger than her. My point is that you're not Christ. Um, so he says, you can get in the yoke with me. He's going to do all the pulling, okay? Um, we're just supposed to obey. You're not Christ, so we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up there. So these were some deep questions. And like we said, some of them are a little more our opinion versus Bible, especially as we came into some of these marriage and relationship things. Um, But the Bible talks about speaking the truth in love. And I hope that we have done that. Um, And if we agree to disagree, then okay. And we'll be fine with that. I hope you'll be fine with that. Um, but we just tried to take the questions that you all gave us and to answer them from the Bible. So hopefully you all have enjoyed this. Maybe we'll do this again in the future. I always love um, hearing your questions and Simeon and I really even more fun than recording it. We really enjoy the conversations that come out of our preparation and our study for preparing for this episode. So thank you. It's brought up some really good conversations and even helped solidify what we believe in areas as we've tried to get into God's word and to get God's heart on some of these things. So thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to joining you next week. I hope that this episode has brought much glory to Christ, encouraged your heart, and strengthened you to be the wife and mother that God has created you to be. Thanks for listening.